Hi, I'm George Tekmachov. Thanks for joining us for the last Eastern Target Archery podcast of 2021. And in this time of endings, I'm bringing you a story of a beginning by author Masa Takai, who has been working for a few years now on the definitive history of Easton. The 100th anniversary book will be presented later this year, and I'm going to share with you right now one of the first chapters. The title is Origins in Hunting, but you'll see where target archery comes into play pretty soon. Doug Easton grew up in rural Watsonville, California, just a few miles from the beaches of the Central Coast. The area had large, open tracts of land and plentiful game, and as a boy, he often went afield toting his prized 20-gauge shotgun loaded with number four shot. An adept marksman, he would take rabbits, chucks, and squirrels, often on the run. He'd pack his shotgun to school, where it would sit racked alongside other shotguns and 22 bolt guns ready for hunts on the walk home. Well, on another morning in 1921, Doug Easton, a 14-year-old, lean and sinewy, went after ducks in the coastal marshes, intending to get a few for breakfast. His mother, Charlotte, in particular, was fond of duck. But that morning, he didn't have any luck. Now, normally, he was pretty meticulous about gun safety, but Doug still had the barrels loaded and the safeties off when he drove home and in the driveway rested the shotgun against the fender of the family's Model T Ford. When Doug got out of the truck, the gun slid to the ground and went off, blasting both his legs. His left leg was hit so badly the tibia was destroyed and the bone left exposed. Having served in World War I, the doctor had seen a lot of young soldiers recover from seemingly impossible trauma, so he decided to wait one more day before removing Doug's severely wounded limb, as would have been normal at the time. Doug's mother and a group of her friends stayed up through the night, praying. Doug did keep his leg, but for the rest of his life he would wrap it every morning to give support to the single remaining lower bone. Along with numerous painful surgeries, he faced a long recovery, and after six months, addiction to the morphine he'd been prescribed for the constant pain. Through an enormous effort of self-will, he weaned himself off the drug, a feat he later called the hardest thing he'd ever done. The Gift of a Book While he recovered, a friend gave Doug what turned out to be a most fortuitous gift, a slim tome called Yahi Archery by Dr. Saxton Pope. The book described the ancient techniques and remarkable craftsmanship of the Native Americans who hunted with bows and arrows. Pope's source was the last American Indian who'd lived most of his life without contacting settlers. Doug pored over the book, the exacting details captivating his imagination. Hazel shaft arrows, front end loaded with heavier foreshafts, buzzard feather fletching, tied on with chewed deer sinew, tipped with napped obsidian heads of exquisite form and symmetry. His sharp intellect and focus were caught by the dream of creating these implements for himself. After nearly a year, Doug finally left his hospital bed to continue his convalescence at the main family home, where he would later take full advantage of the tools, workspace, and raw materials available there for his first efforts at making archery tackle. Doug never lost his love of the shooting sports, remaining a lifelong firearms enthusiast, but his new fascination was archery. 
what turned out to be an enduring passion would send the Easton family on a whole new trajectory into the next century. As he reached his 15th birthday and still recovering, Doug Easton gathered the tools and materials needed to craft his first hand-honed bow. The earliest tackle. It's no surprise that Doug Easton proved to be a talented craftsman given his family roots, but he also turned out to be a natural engineer, possessing innate talent for mechanical devices, materials, and woodworking, constantly thought of new ways to improve the things he worked on. With guidance from Dr. Pope's book containing important tips on working with you wood, he learned through trial and error the nuances of handling the temperamental material. He honed his skill in sculpting the wood so the highly elastic outer fibers formed a thin layer on the back of the bow, the side facing the target, balancing it perfectly with the compression-resistant inner wood of the stave. A Chance Encounter Largely recovered by late 1923, Doug was so taken with archery that he moved to San Francisco, home to an active archery community, where he practiced regularly. Late one morning, he was shooting his self-made bow at the Golden Gate Park Range, a secluded public archery ground at the time. The morning fog had rolled away, revealing a cool, bright day. The passerby stopped to watch the young Doug launching arrow after arrow up to 60 yards, hitting with authority the painted cloth target pinned to the hay bales serving as a backstop. During a break in the shooting, the distinguished-looking older man greeted Doug, and looking over Doug's tackle, expressed admiration for the design and craftsmanship. When the stranger asked where he had acquired such fine gear, Doug revealed he'd made it all himself, going on to explain how he'd learned what he knew from a book written by a Dr. Pope. Taken aback, the man held out his hand and introduced himself. He was the book's author, Dr. Saxton Pope himself. It was clearly a defining moment in my father's life. Dr. Pope complimented my father, then only 16, on the fine workmanship of the bow and arrows that my father had made. That meeting and those compliments forever changed and set the course of my father's life. Jim Easton Kindred Spirits Dr. Saxton Pope was born in 1875 to a military surgeon stationed in remote garrisons throughout the American West. His childhood was a rugged frontier one, hunting, fishing, camping, and gaining the skills of a woodsman. And part of that was shooting arrows. Every boy goes through a period of barbarism, Pope described, just as the nations have passed, and during that age he is stirred by the call of the bow. I, too, shot the toy bows of boyhood, shot with Indian youths in the army posts of Texas and Arizona. We played the impromptu pageants of Robin Hood, manufactured our own tackle, and carried it about with unfailing fidelity, hunted small birds and rabbits, and we were the usual savages of that age. Young Saxton went on to earn a degree in medicine from the University of California, and in 1912, moved to San Francisco to teach surgery at his alma mater. Just a year earlier, a gaunt and bewildered Native American had appeared from the bush in Oroville, California, and was promptly thrown in jail. He turned out to be the last surviving member of the Yana tribe. He and his people had had virtually no direct contact with the land's new settlers. 
When anthropologists from the University of California investigated, they brought the man who came to be known as Ishi, the Yahi word for man, back to live at the University Museum of Anthropology on campus. The museum was next to the university's medical school, where Ishii began working as a janitor. Since he had not acquired immunity to any of the infections at the time, he was often sick, and Pope became his physician. The two formed a deep friendship. As Pope would later write, he knew the history and use of everything in the outdoor world. He spoke the language of the animals. He taught me to make bows and arrows, how to shoot them, and how to hunt Indian fashion. He was a wonderful companion in the woods, and many nights and days we journeyed together. Ishii died of tuberculosis in 1916. A couple of years later, Pope released the book that would so impact the young Doug Easton. He went on to write more influential books and magazine articles that sprang from the seed Ishii had planted, including the classic Hunting with the Bow and Arrow. A Golden Age Bowhunter and boyer William Chief Compton came to visit Ishii, and with 30 years' experience over Pope, he also became Pope's bow-building and hunting mentor. It is through Compton that another young archer, Art Young, met Ishii and, as a consequence, Saxton Pope. Later, Young and Pope traveled together, hunting everything from grizzly bear in Yellowstone Park to lions and other plains animals in Africa. The two men lent their names to the Pope and Young Club, one of North America's foremost bow hunting and conservation organizations, and the Ishi Award remains the club's highest honor. The influence of Ishi and these men on the course of modern North American archery cannot be overstated. And it was the writings and films of Pope and Young that future Archery Hall of Fame inductees such as Fred Bear, Earl Hoyt, and countless others in the public credit with sparking their interest in archery and the revival of bow hunting in North America. It wasn't just a love of archery that Doug Easton and Saxon Pope had in common, but a particular tenacity. When accounting for any of his successes in the field of hunting and adventure, Pope wrote, In my own mind, the credit is ascribed to the fact that I've surrounded myself with good companions and tried again and again in spite of failure. Doug Easton might have written the same himself. from avocation to vocation. That hunting accident effectively derailed Doug's school career, and in another era, he might have still gone on to pursue higher education, but he was consumed with his passion for archery and bow-making. This, after all, was the Roaring Twenties, a time of great economic expansion and increased leisure time. Archery had emerged as a popular activity in higher social circles, and word of his bows reached beyond the state of California and even across the country into such eastern archery hotbeds as Ohio and New York. Doug started selling bows mostly to fellow club members and close friends. Although he didn't have the capital to start a proper business on his own, he chose to pursue bow building as his vocation. By 1925, he'd taken a part-time job making bows for the California Byproducts Company in Oakland. In all, he spent two years there before moving back to Watsonville. To live and shoot in L.A. In 1929, at the age of 22, Doug Easton loaded up his Indian motorcycle and moved to Los Angeles, lured by better shooting weather. 
Despite crashing in a windstorm outside Ventura, he arrived none the worse for wear, settling into what is today downtown Los Angeles. Doug quickly found space in a small garage at 4303 Haldale Avenue in the southern Los Angeles neighborhood of Vermont Square, just a couple of miles from the campus of the University of Southern California. For nearly five years, that garage shop served as his test lab and manufacturing facility, and it was during this time that his signature bow elements, ergonomic pigskin grips, reflexed limb tips, and other distinct features took shape. To support himself during this time, he took on a full-time job delivering large rolls of newsprint for the Sierra Zellerbach Paper Company. This job furnished most of his income until the early 30s, but still left him time to make archery equipment and shoot in as many competitions as possible. During this time, Doug met Mary Simonich, a 21-year-old business student at USC. Charming, intelligent, raised on a ranch in the small San Joaquin Valley town of Porterville, as the second of seven children, Mary became an avid archer after the two met. The Two-Footed Cedar Arrow As a tackle maker, Doug was increasingly frustrated by the inconsistency of wood arrows. Nor was he alone. Archers everywhere suffered from the fact that wood arrows varied Archers everywhere suffered from the fact that wood arrows varied so widely in their properties. After all, no two pieces of wood are identical. Grain, density, moisture content, stiffness, all fluctuate even from adjacent pieces of the same billet. Since an archer uses only one bow at a time, bows don't have the same problem, but arrows are shot in groups, three, six, a dozen. And that is where the small differences in each arrow become quite apparent. To group their arrows on target, archers needed stiffness, straightness, and weight to stay the same from shaft to shaft. Doug was applying his keen intellect to solving this challenge. In search of the Holy Grail, consistency. Two-footed cedar arrows were first developed by Boyer James Duff and became the standard of the day. Through this, Doug saw that one could reduce the inconsistency of wood by using lamination, the same principle that makes plywood stronger and more consistent than straight boards alone. Splicing two pieces of wood to leverage their properties and average out the differences resulted in a better arrow. Early two-footed laminate design used a wedge-shaped splice joint to connect a dense hardwood front to a lighter, straight cedar shaft. The result was improved flight and accuracy and also improved consistency between arrows. The 1930s, marriage and a partnership. In 1932, Doug and Mary were married. It was the start of a partnership that would last 40 years. At the time, Mary worked as a personal buyer for the Barker Brothers Furniture Company right up until their first son was born, and she used those skills and her business education in supporting the family business. In the early days, she took care of the books and correspondence, and in all, she worked at Easton right up until four years before she passed away at her late 80s. The Four-Footed Cedar Arrow In 1931, Doug Easton came out with a radical improvement in archery technology, the Four-Footed Arrow. His development was a watershed event ensuring, even with the limitations of wood, a significantly higher degree of consistency 
for the archer. His arrows had more front-of-setter mass due to the splicing of a very dense wood, beef wood, on the front end. For people who aren't archers, visualize a modern wooden pool cue. Many of today's pool cues are made similarly, except it's the handle end that's splined, spliced woods going together. The front end mass had two key advantages. The added weight up front makes for better stability in flight. Second, it resists target impact stress and war better. Handcrafted. A four-footed arrow required cruciform splines be hand-cut into the end of the shaft and matching wedges on the beef wood made for the two pieces to be glued together. The pieces were then twined into place, cured, and lathed with proper centering and perfect timing on where those feet for the splines came into the shaft. And that's just the start. Then the arrow was barreled, shaped to be bigger in the middle and thinner at the ends to improve arrow departure from the bow giving superior flight characteristics. Finally, a knock was handmade from aluminum and applied to the back of the arrow and then shaped to match that arrow, and a point was fitted specifically to that arrow. The craftsmanship involved was mind-boggling. Consistent. The four-footed arrow made the arrow pretty much the same stiffness, 360 degrees around the shaft, while the two-footed arrow was stiffer in one plane than another. So a four-footed arrow, in theory at least, would be able to fly better because when the arrow is launched from the bow, it bends around the bow. The arrow is flexing all the way down to the target. And the flex of the four-footed arrow is more even compared to the flex of a two-footed arrow. Precise. Up until then, every archer numbered their arrows and had what's called a shot clock, so they would know where to put the point of each arrow as they aimed the target. They didn't have sights on their bows. They had to know where to aim that particular arrow's point to have it go in the middle of the target. For example, let's say you had arrow number four. Well, that one you might aim at two o'clock, one foot in from the edge of the target. And because of its characteristics, it would end up in the middle. Each individual arrow had its own impact point, and the archers had to be familiar with where that was. With the advent of Doug Easton's four-footed cedar arrow, every shaft was matched to its mate within a dozen, and so they all shot to the same point. Tailored. Doug had to make arrows custom for each archer's needs. That is, the arrow's stiffness had to be specifically made to fit a particular archer's draw weight and draw length, a quality we call spine. So you can't just build an arrow and three different people can just shoot it. Capital Intensive. To build a dozen arrows and match them all up out of wood was a daunting task. It took hours and hours of work. As a result, the cost of a dozen arrows was something on the order of a couple of weeks' wages in the 1930s, which, being the beginnings of the Great Depression, was not exactly a time of economic plenty. That would certainly have been a limiting factor in terms of how many people could afford a dozen good arrows. Efficient since Doug's arrows were also more durable, you weren't forced to come up with new arrows that you had to somehow introduce into an existing previous set. So, better value for what you spent and also greater precision. Custom. The back of the arrow was customarily dipped in a very thin white lacquer to keep the weight down. Archers of that arrow would identify their arrows by very precisely painting stripes of various widths on what's called the cresting of the arrow shaft. Those stripes that people might think are decorative were actually Morse code for the archer's initials. All-consuming. Making a dozen arrows might not be the same as making a dozen bows, but it's pretty darn close. 
Making the arrows is a much finer operation. No two bows ever shot the same. But these arrows all had to. Now, Doug Easton being a perfectionist, and the amount of labor required to build these arrows, something would have to give. As he began to build more of these arrows, and they became more in demand, his output of bows decreased. So, he chose to apply his talents where they were the most appreciated. He, much more than other makers at the time, were able to make an arrow that was both more durable, more accurate, and, most importantly, more consistent. It took 200 dowels to select a dozen tournament-grade arrows. Jim Easton By 1934, in spite of the ravages of the Great Depression and an ongoing need to support his father, Doug had amassed enough capital to work on developing archery equipment full-time. He moved from the little garage on Holdale into a more spacious 50-by-60-foot corrugated tin building at 1919 Fifth Avenue in the Arlington Heights neighborhood of central Los Angeles. Mary would help in the evenings applying labels and decals to their first arrows. For the first six years, this modest building with large double broadhead Easton logo was arguably the world's leading archery product development facility. With hundreds of enthusiastic Southern California customers, Doug saw his archery tackle revenues and reputation grow, and so did his desire to take his products to a new level. Jim and Mary's first son, James Leland Easton, arrived on July 26, 1935. Mary went into labor just three days before a major event the couple was organizing, that year's United States National Archery Association National Championship in Los Angeles. James, or Jim as he's always been known, was born into a family whose entire being was centered on archery. It's no wonder then his own life would become dedicated to the sport. Metal Arrows Doug Easton was a determined man. His perfectionist personality couldn't tolerate the inconsistency of even the most exquisitely crafted wood arrows. His continuous desire to improve led him to one inescapable conclusion. In time, cost, and performance, wood would never satisfy. The Solution His thoughts turned to the only material available at the time that could produce the required consistency metal, so he began experimenting with arrow shafts made from steel. Now, he wasn't the only one to have thought of this solution. In fact, there already existed an arrow, marketed by the company that is today known as True Temper, but at the time was called the American Fork and Hoe Company. A very thin-walled, drawn carbon steel arrow. The walls were three and a half thousandths of an inch of carbon steel, paper thin. If it cracked or otherwise became compromised, the arrow could fail with frightening consequences. The End of the Age of Wood Taking up the challenge of obsoleting his own techniques and technologies, Doug turned his back on nearly two decades spent making what had become known within a small community of archers as the finest handcrafted wood longbows and arrows available. He knew that only metal offered the consistency he sought, a uniform metal alloy, formed into the exact same shape and dimensions, produces identical mass and stiffness every time. Principle sounds simple, but the execution? Very difficult. To attain nearly perfect spine matching from a metal structure that was strong and light yet could still be straightened required manufacturing to exceptionally tight tolerances. 
The problem was this level of precision and metalworking technology didn't exist. Others, including one of the Fulberth brothers, who invented the first automatic windshield wiper, had tried using soft aluminum tubes as arrow shafting in the 1930s, but those tubes proved good for only a couple of shots before misshaping. Now, he hadn't even graduated from high school, but Doug took on the task of educating himself in metallurgy and related disciplines, and beginning in 1936, he pored over industrial literature and technical papers. Toward the end of the decade, he believed he had worked out the basics. What he'd hit upon was cold drawing extruded tubing to smaller diameters with a precision draw bench and then heat treating the alloy for maximum strength. These processes were reasonably well established in other fields, but never to the degree of precision and strength he required. Selecting 2000 series Alcoa aluminum for his initial efforts, he had worked out on paper and to some degree practically all of the many steps required to take arrows to a level of smooth motion and constant velocity previously believed unattainable. Breakthroughs The fundamental elements to his approach were cold drawing over a mandrel and through a die for control over wall thickness to a thousandths of an inch. He would cold work the grain structure for the greatest durability, heat and cool the tube for ideal strength, straighten the resulting shafts without breaking them. Doug had to work out an array of innovations, from the lubricant used to draw the tubes to the methods for quenching the tubes in a deep pool of molten salt after heat treatment to the straightening process. His process, originally done by hand with rudimentary equipment, would later be accomplished with Easton Custom Machinery. Those processes he developed are as remarkable as the arrows they produced, and they're also a trade secret, carefully guarded by the Easton family, to this day. Excerpted from the book that Easton is producing on its first hundred years, being released in the third quarter of 2022. If you'd like to get a copy of the book and get on the list for available copies, please email the Easton Management Group by sending an email with your name and address to easton100 at EastonMG.com. I'm George Techman and we'll see you in the new year with another Easton Target Archery podcast.